everyone, and welcome to this episode of Heart to Heart with Dr. Lee Valentine. I'm your host, Lee Valentine. As I got ready to introduce this segment, uh, one only thing I could think of was uh, Steve Harvey in Family Feud. Every show he comes on and says, we're going to have a good one today. And I'm your man, Steve Harvey. Well, I'm not your man, Steve Harvey, but I think we're going to have a good one today. I want to introduce to you my guest today, the Reverend Jeffrey Rickman from Nowata, Oklahoma. Uh, Jeffrey is uh, a, a new elder in the Global Methodist Church. He used to be a former minister, a former minister with the United Methodist Church. And so um, I'm going to let him, well, I want first of all, welcome you to Heart to Heart. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell if you want to tell the viewers a little bit, just you know, a little about yourself that I didn't mention. Tell me anything that you'd like to share with them initially. Oh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, born and bred pretty much. My parents were United Methodist clergy in the West Texas Annual Conference, and then uh, we moved to Oklahoma whenever I was young. Um, did uh, left the faith while in undergrad, but then had a, a strange encounter with the Holy Spirit that uh, caused me to want to go to seminary and explore things a little bit better. Um, I thought I was a progressive liberal at that point, went to the School of the Prophets, Boston University School of Theology, and found in reading the Bible and encountering modern progressivism that I am not that. Um, And my sensibilities uh, swung, and and, uh, I found a much happier home in, in what I would consider the consensual tradition of the saints of the ages uh, did several four four and a half five years of ministry in Oregon Idaho annual conference and then came back to Oklahoma eight years ago. Have served five local churches as head pastor um, uh, in rural small settings. So Nowata is a, a county seat where in the city limits we have I think thirty three hundred people. Um, but mm-hmm. I have a, my podcast is a much bigger audience. Um, talking on just contemporary issues from a conservative worldview, uh, theological framework, and uh, mostly trying to just minister to people that have been kind of um, bulldozed over by the institutional forces of the United Methodist Church and just trying to give good, solid information. I try and always have uh, a source to cite, an article to walk through, and uh, quotes to have. So I never want to be just one, you know, blow hard with, with my own opinion. Uh, I'd like to think that what I'm offering is a, a sober and, and spiritually mature uh, way for people to uh, navigate what is a very intimidating and complicated situation right now. So that's kind of what I'm about. Yeah, well, good. You know, uh, that that kind of leads me to that's kind of what Heart to Heart is really designed to be. Um, this is kind of a new thing for me, but Heart to Heart is really a a, a, a medium where people can talk, talk to each other. Uh, talk about issues um, and kind of bring things to the center and let's talk about it instead of arguing about it let's um, let, let's let's talk about things that that matter and I think we find out that we probably more alike than we are not alike mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Jeffrey I um, probably the last 10 months I've been doing a lot of research um, just in just in the condition of the church itself um, and um, watching podcasts, reading, doing everything like that. And I came across a podcast that Jeffrey did with uh, John Harris, who has a podcast called Worldwide Conversation. 
And I listen to that conversations that matter. Conversations that matter. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that correction. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, And I listened to that podcast and I said, I don't know, Jeffrey, but I think Jeffrey's somebody that I would like to talk to about this issue about, because I think uh, what that what happens is I think Jeffrey brings youth. He brings uh, seminary training experience there. And uh, look at me, I've got a lot of snow on my head. So I, I think I bring hopefully uh, 41 years of practicing medicine. Um, I've seen a lot of things, done a lot of things, made a lot of decisions and sometimes hard decisions. So maybe a little wisdom to this, uh, maybe bring a little bit of that. So mm-hmm. uh, I reached out to Jeffrey and he agreed to uh, join me on this. And uh, I really, really do appreciate that very much. Happy to um, oblige. So I hope we can get started. Yes, sir. Do me a favor right now, if you would. You did a good job with John kind of giving everybody a summary. And let me tell the listeners right now that even though we're going to focus today on the issues of the United Methodist Church, um, if you are not a member of a church or denomination, if you are a member of another denomination, I really think you're going to learn some things today, hopefully, that'll just help you as a human being, not necessarily pro-con United Methodist. So hope you'll stay tuned and say, oh, well, this is about the United Methodist Church. I'm you know, going to tune out. I think it's going to overall be a good session of information. At least I hope that's what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you would, though, the people who aren't familiar with the situation. You started, I think, then about 2016. Give us a little bit of a summary of what's happened in the United Methodist Church from 2016 to bringing us forward. Well, so you, you've you've done a good job setting this up for an audience that is not necessarily United Methodist, and I think right at the outset we have to say this is pertinent to people who are not United Methodist because it deals with forces that are not particular to United Methodism or the Wesleyan tradition, there are several institutional forces, several cultural forces at play globally that are having this play out in similar but different ways across lots of institutions. So we're, we're living in a, a context right now where a lot of institutions across the West and also across the world, but especially in the West, have betrayed the trust that they've asked for, and they're continuing to ask for it. And some people are, are happy to continue giving it, but others uh, like me, are not happy to continue giving it because we feel like that trust has been betrayed, the mask has, has slipped, and, and that we have seen that the people holding the controls of power are largely self-interested and not really interested in self-denial or serving the people under them or serving the Lord in whose name that they serve. And I know that's quite strong language, but um, when you you asked me to, to recapitulate brief, briefly history since 2016, 2016 was uh, the last proper general conference that the United Methodist Church had. The denomination gets together every four years with delegates representing every part of the what's a global church, and that alone is the body. The general conference is the only body that can speak for who the denomination is and what they stand for. I'm going to try not to say we anymore because I'm not a we. I'm not, I've left. I'm GMC. But the only hard to do sometimes, you know, it's uh, one day I'll be good at it, but I've gotten in trouble (laughs) for it. So in 2016, the general conference gathered 
to um, pass legislation. And ever since the formation of, of the, um, the denomination, there has been a vocal progressive left that is very strong in America. Globally, it hasn't caught much traction, but they have refused to accept the um, – Cons- uh, not consensus, but the majority opinion of the general conference every quadrennium where they have said we need to change our sexual ethics, we need to change our understanding of marriage, and the the majority of the denomination every single four years has said no, absolutely not. That's that's you know that we have it's a very gracious body where they call themselves a big tent and there's a lot of room. Even the conservatives within the group very tolerant you know people in other christian bodies look at the conservatives in the united methodist church and go you're just less you're just less liberal and um so they they've they allowed what they can they've really pushed the outer limits as much as they can but progressives have just refused to take no for an answer in 2016 it got to a boiling point and adam hamilton and several others said we need to have a special conference designated just to figure this issue out we've got to have a once and for all final decision. And so they scheduled a a special called General Conference in 2019, where those delegates once again, once again came. And the bishops were supposed to have done a lot of work to provide a solution after lots of, of, of deliberation. And what they got behind was called the One Church Plan, which was essentially do whatever you want. Everyone do what's right in your own eyes, which had been presented at every quadrennium beforehand. It was unsuitable. Chris Ritter and some others uh, uh, authored another plan called the jurisdictional plan that never got off the ground because it was so complicated. And then there was a traditional plan, which the bishops never even took seriously for reasons that we probably don't have time to get into. But they didn't even present it. But because of the acclaim of the, um, the, the, the popular acclaim of the delegation, they said, we need this. And so the, the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters gutted it and then presented it, which was essentially – maintaining the sexual ethic that the UMC had and strengthening some of its provisions. The, um, the, the Standing Committee on Central Conference Ministry gutted a lot of that. Anyway, that's the one that passed, despite lots of bishops working against it, despite lots of money working against it. Um, and after that point, a lot of the American United Methodist Church was in outright um, rebellion, just said, we are not going to obey this. We're not going to abide by it. Boards of Ordained Ministry said we are not. We don't care about this. We're not going to ask about it. The entire Western jurisdiction said we are going to do the opposite. And then at that point, conservatives knew that uh, that they were not dealing with good faith partners, and they needed to negotiate a way out. So Bishop, I always forget his name, an African bishop convened um, a, a group of uh, delegates from all the caucus groups in the United Methodist Church secretly to come up with um, uh, 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 what was called the Protocol for Peaceful Separation, and it was a long title. But the long and short of it was that the United Methodist Church was going to soberly acknowledge that they just could not be together, and the denomination was going to provide some seed money for a new denomination and an easy way out for for groups that that wanted to leave. And then uh, COVID happened, and Different uh, institutional and special groups forces use that as an opportunity to delay uh, the decision, and they still haven't gotten together. Um, uh, it was revealed by, oh heck, I interviewed him. Joe DiPaolo served on the General Conference Commission that they never even seriously considered getting together. They they did what they could to not even do the work before them so that they could delay, delay, delay. 
while meanwhile uh, advocating for uh, progressive shift. And then um, finally, the GMC just broke off, said we can't continue to do this dysfunction. We can't continue to send our money to people who hate us and work against us. And um, that, that introduced a whole new chapter of um, people who signed off on the protocol now reneging on it and saying, no, I don't want an easy way out. Paragraph 2553 was the provision adopted in 2019 for churches to exit. They've been trying to utilize it. Council of Bishops, even though they don't have the right to, said, um, you know what? People outside of the United States can't even use this provision. Um, and so only American churches have been able to leave. A lot of them have been entrapped by annual conference structures that have been very hostile. American judicial ju- judiciary judges have had to get involved to make some annual conferences abide by the language of the general conference. Um, a, a lot of people have had no recourse, and it looks like at the end of the year when paragraph 2553 expires, um, a huge number of churches are going to be trapped in a denomination that doesn't seem to have any interest in authoring a way out for anyone at all and has been uh, very eager in some places to seize property and assets and uh, kick out the communities that have built them and funded them and maintained them over this time. So it's a grim picture, man. It doesn't look good. It's bringing out the worst in people. Um, but uh, right now the decision that's before the denomination is can people with money and power graciously let it go, and the answer has been no. And there was plenty of time to prepare for it, but um, they're, they're not doing well. So people like me, we decided we had to get out, but there are a lot of people left behind that I haven't moved on. I still care very much about. I'd like to think that normal, everyday people, whether they lean left or right, care about people being coerced into a covenant body they don't want to be in. But unless something changes, that looks like what's going to happen. So would you say that the initial issue or the central issue here is basic defiance, um, breaking the uh, book of discipline, no accountability, uh, the church hierarchy amok? Is that is that from a ministerial standpoint or a clergy standpoint? Because I know as a clergy, you're you're involved in going to annual conferences. I've never been to an annual conference, but so I'm not involved in that part of it. So mm-hmm. from your standpoint, that is a, a, a big part of it, right or not? Yeah, no, that, that ties into the big beast of broken covenant. I mean, that's, that's, I think what conservative usually, conservatives usually coalesce around whenever, when there's a a pattern of behavior in the same direction that is not willing to submit to the authority of our governing body, that is not willing to uh, compromise with uh, the decisions made there, and then elevates self and ego and one's own reasoning over the collective or, uh, yeah, over the collective decision-making, that makes it so that – I mean the, that is the definition of the word, word dysfunction. And right. so to ask for people to be in an openly and unapologetically dysfunctional system, it, it's just an odd proposition. The only people that I know that are content are people who are just blissfully unaware of, of all of this. But uh, <laughs> I, I, it's just such an icky situation that I don't think there's – I don't think, yeah, I, I've not found a way to feel good about it. Well, this is this is a little different direction for me today, and I'll tell you why. From your standpoint or being involved in the administrative part of the ministry, mm-hmm. uh, I can see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. 
the feedback I'm getting as a physician who's been practicing for 40 years, I've taken care of a lot of people. I hear people talking, making comments. And sometimes I look around and I think there's a 600 pound elephant in the room. And I feel like that when you peel back all the layers and you really get down to the core of, of what's going on, at least people I know or my, our congregation, it seems to always come back to sexuality or the sexuality in the church. And it, it yes, I, look, I am consider myself a right conservative from that standpoint. Uh, I, you know, it's funny, I never really thought about the church being conservative or liberal until I heard you say that in that podcast. I always... I don't know. I've always gone to church with Democrats and Republicans and Reds and Blues and things <laughs> like that. So I never thought about that that much. So have we kind of gotten to the point where we're starting to divide among political lines? Is that where the line is drawn in the sand or, or what? Well, keep in mind that in the 20th century, for the vast majority of that century, there were conservative and liberal Democrats and conservative and liberal Republicans. It's only very recently that the political lines were redrawn so that all the liberals were supposed to go blue and all the conservatives were supposed to go red. Um, I think it's also important for, for people to remember that conservative and liberal are not primarily political terms, but they are dispositions of, of persons, namely with respect to deference to wisdom of the past. So conservatives, this is broadly painting, accept that the wisdom of the past was gained through legitimate means and still contains great uh, purpose for today. The liberal disposition believes that we're doing something new and we do not need to defer to the traditions inherited from the past. Now, there, that's on a continuum and there are extremes on both ends. But most people lean one way or another when they're up against uh, or when they're met with uh, a, a given tradition like the apostolic tradition of the saints, the consensual tradition of the church. Liberals generally do not feel at all compelled to conform to what's explicitly said in scripture or what's been done for 2,000 years. Rather, they, they believe that hey, we've done something new here. We're part of a new culture, a new civilization, and the rules of the past don't apply to us. We need to innovatively approach these things today. Traditionalists, generally speaking, believe that we're the exact same creatures we've always been. There's nothing new under the sun, and we need to defer to the wisdom of, of previous cultures and ages um, uh, lest we, you know, if we abandon them, we do them at our own expense, and the, the, the final price being damnation. I would say that the root core issue is not human sexuality. If you're at all familiar with the, the Methodist Articles of Religion, I would say it deals with Articles 6 and 7 of the Articles of Religion, um, which deal with human nature and the nature of sin. So I, I think the, the dividing place between liberals and conservatives it, it here is liberals believe, generally speaking, that the way humans born – there's nothing wrong with us, that we are not inclined towards good or evil, that we are largely built based in response to our environment. And that's why there's this great concern about creating a fair system um, so that all people can thrive and flourish and make good decisions. And, and what sin is is basically just bad decisions. Conservatives believe that humans are born in sin, bent towards sinning, 
damned. Uh, we cannot save ourselves. This is explicit language in the the uh, historic um, Methodist doctrine, the Articles of Religion. We we are thoroughly inclined towards sin, unable to save ourselves. And were it not for a supernatural event happening, namely God becoming a human and dying for us, becoming a substitutionary, atoning death for us, we could not, would not ever be saved. And so what that means is conservatives believe we're born messed up. So it's it's not hard for conservatives to say, fine, maybe we're, you know, I'm inclined towards sin in this way. Other people are inclined in sin towards this way. The response of the church is not, we will bless you in that but we will call you to righteousness out of that, and we will model the way of righteousness. Liberals are interested in the opposite project. You know, so the, the reason we're in a, an untenable situation is because we're at cross-purposes. We use the same words but mean very different things by it. We say the word mission, but we're in mission in opposite directions. And so liberals are engaged in the process of helping people come to terms with who they are and blessing them in that and removing the guilt that society puts on them for that. Um, They're irreconcilable positions. And so um, I've been of the mind for a while that in that sense, I don't, you know, in a political sense, uh, liberals and conservatives, we have to work together. But in an ecclesiological sense, in the church, there is no such thing as working together because we don't have the same purposes. We don't. We don't fear, you know. Liberals don't fear hell, damnation, sin. Um, they don't. They don't think that Jesus does the same thing. A lot of them don't believe that what happened on the cross was even necessary for salvation. Don't necessarily. Yeah, this this spills out into. I mean, it's not. You know, if it were just human sexuality, that's that's just one small part of life. But it's connected to everything. It's 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 to deal with is sin real. What is what is my nature as a man? Do I need to be saved? These are f- fundamental foundational issues that are all connected to that. And so the presenting issue was, yes, sexuality. But the undergirding issue is, do we believe that we are fallen or do we believe that we're basically good? And these things cannot be reconciled. Yeah, you know, I think that when you get to the theology that uh, Jesus was a good person and uh, he wasn't, he didn't die on the cross, I mean, that's, you know, totally... But my feedback a lot of times from what we've been going through has been the sexuality part. And I think that there's some misunderstanding. There's fear. There's uh, I just and, and that's why I wanted to talk with. And in fact, I, today I want to kind of focus more on the homosexuality part of it, the sexual mm-hmm. preference part of it, because I think our listeners or some of our listeners have questions. Um, I'll tell you a little bit of how I got involved just real quickly, but. I I wanted to be a doctor since I was 10, 11, 12 when I was in Boy Scouts and started doing first aid. Got a stethoscope for my 12th birthday. Mm-hmm. Applied to medical school and college, and, and afterwards, and two times I got turned down. I was disappointed. I prayed every night, God, you know, help me get into medical school. I want to go study medicine. Um, I ran into a friend of mine in the, uh, I went to Ole Miss, Miss, University of Mississippi. I ran into a friend of mine in the Grove. Uh, he mentioned he was a pharmacist and he was going to an osteopathic medical school in Kansas City, Missouri. And he gave me the guy's name, said, you need to go talk to him. I went and talked to him, uh, went and interviewed. I interviewed at University of Mississippi Medical Center. My interview lasted 15 minutes. Uh, went to Kansas City. My interview lasted over an hour. Mm. Um, got accepted. But when I came back and started telling people where I were going, 
Nobody knew what a DO was. Nobody knew what an osteopathic physician was. So I had to deal with a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And when I say ignorance, I'm not talking about being dumb or stupid. I'm talking about just lack of knowledge. And I had to explain myself over and over again. Are you a real doctor? Can you write prescriptions? Could I come see you as a patient? So I know about being misunderstood. And I think right now there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. And so I wanted to chat with you today about that issue and get your thoughts. So my first question would be, can you give me an overview of your views on the issue of homosexuality and as it applies to the church? So it's a big topic. Um, I should say, since you know, I this hasn't been my main thing, but I have done some some interviews around this. I, I've talked with an activist in Virginia named Drew Enns, and we talked about a lot of sex, uh, gender theory. Um, it was a good conversation. I've spoken with David. What is his last name? He's a professor at United. I'm going to remember it later and be mad. But he is also a, a historian on. Um, ancient Greece and Rome and the Apocrypha, and so we talked about human sexuality from a historical perspective. And then I also spoke with a gentleman from Transforming Congregations, and of course his his name is escaping me as well, but he is uh, what would be described as ex-gay. He used to be um, openly homosexual, part of the club scene, just headlong into it, and, and Christ redeemed him and his wife out of that way of life, and they're now married and have kids. And, um, you know, there's years of uh, – I, I used to know a lot of uh, gay folks and be friends, so it's not an issue. This, this is people. Um, the, um, this is not something where this is the, the life of theory, but this, this engages real people with real issues and real feelings. And so that – all that to say that my views are not a reflection of some dispassionate or uh, – small-minded uh, thing, but come from personal experience, from from having done a good deal of reading and prayer and meditation myself. And that's not to say I think I have it all figured out. But um, my understanding uh, is that uh, human sexuality has always been messy and has always refused to be put in boxes, and that there are a great many sexual practices and inclinations that in, in many senses are natural uh, in the sense that they show up all throughout human history um, and yet are not good. They're, they're not pleasing to God uh, for, for different reasons. There are systematic theologies of sex and gender that I find more or less compelling, but um, in the end, um, the, the, the conservative worldview is, uh, religiously speaking, not dependent on understanding the reasoning for everything, but just understanding that God hath said, so it's my job not to rationalize and explain it and put it into a set of of, of uh, principles that then can be universally applied, but that in many senses I just need to understand what was said and conform my life to it. So there's a good deal of the Old Testament, uh, the law in uh, Leviticus and Numbers that's dedicated to being very explicit about all the various sexual acts that are not acceptable in God's eyes and effect, uh, are, are called toeba in Hebrew, which means an abomination. Homosexuality is one of these many sexual sins that is unacceptable. The biblical worldview is not that homosexuality alone, homosexual acts, I shouldn't say homosexuality. Homosexuality is a, a, a modern box that was invented by the West. It's a notion of identity that one a person is inclined only sexually towards people of their own sex exclusively, 
that's something that doesn't really hold up historically or if you look longitudinally at most people who identify as gay. Um, Lisa Diamond has done a lot of work on this showing that, that sex is much more fluid and malleable than we appreciate. In the West, we like our identities. We like our labels. We like our boxes. It's, it's really a very – we don't see how silly it is because of how close we are to it. But when you look at it historically, it's, it's quite silly. So anyway, homosexuality is a construct. It's not a real thing. Homosexual acts are a real thing, and the Bible talks about them explicitly in the Old Testament and then also in the New Testament. And Paul in particular in Romans 1 and 2 is, is quite explicit about why it's wrong, what it proceeds out of, how it is a hateful thing to participate in um, and, and not to correct. And so Christians, as they came on the scene in ancient Rome, homosexual acts were very common. And no, they were not all based on pederasty or uh, temple prostitution. There were, as N.T. Wright talks about, there were loving, mutual, rela exclusive relationships between people of the same sex. They were still wrong. And so as Christians came onto the scene, there was a very strong concern for sexual ethics, not just against homosexuality, against any kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage to a person of the opposite sex. It was a revolutionary way of being in the world, unseen in the world, resulted in uh, uniformly across the Christian world, Christendom, women being uh, benefited, given dignity and nobility, and uh, solid household units being built up, and violence essentially being controlled. And there's been a lot of really interesting work done on that, most recently the one I know of, uh, Tom Holland in the book Dominion, acknowledging that Christianity is single-handedly responsible for the most peaceable time in human history. And that is very much connected to sexual ethics and behavior because uh, male sexuality in particular, whenever it's not checked and controlled, as it is in monogamous um, Christian settings, gets wild and violent and bad, bad things happen. And so this has huge implications, um, but we don't understand these things when we're limited to a contemporary Western mindset that has its identities and boxes. You have these people born this way with these inalienable identities, homosexuals. We set that up so that it becomes intractable in the church. You know, when, when you're condemning people for inalienable qualities, that's like being racist. And that's exactly how it's been used as a wedge in the church um, to divide. That You treat something that is actually malleable and fluid. I'm not saying it's manipulatable. I'm not saying that you can pray the gay away or condition it away in gay therapy. But I am saying that this is not an inalienable part of human life. Sexuality is actually something that Paul and Jesus both warn about and say it's better to stay away from if you can. Um, so, so we treat these things that are peripheral to the human experience and make them central to the human experience and then say, unless we make room for these people, we are discounting them from the kingdom and saying, because sex is so central to the human experience, we cannot ask people to practice self-denial, especially if you're a liberal and you're born perfectly and not in need of – you're not born broken. You can't ask people to practice self-denial nor to forego any kind of pleasure, but that we need to find a way to help everybody have the pleasure that they want. That becomes the task of the church and to affirm people in what they feel like they are. Uh, again, a very fundamentally different thing from what the conservative understanding of anthropology and hamartiology, that's the theology of sin. So that's how I currently understand the situation 
uh, around the concept of homosexuality in the church. So do you feel like that that um, there is any potential that I – mean, uh, uh, see if I can word this right. Mm-hmm. I hear people say things like Homo- homosexuality is a sin. Mm-hmm. Homosexuals unclean. They're unfit for the kingdom of God. In other words, they're they're saying they. From what I'm listening, they're they'll never reach heaven because they're just not unfit according to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts about that? So I would say that's like saying you know bikers are unfit for the kingdom, and like a biker is a person who's just really into motorcycles. But you find people that are like, man, I got diesel fuel in my veins you know there's no version of me that's not a biker i live in oklahoma it's like saying cowboys can't go to heaven like there are people that were born on a ranch it's in their blood all they've ever known is cowboy like that's all they'll ever be and i think we just have a fundamental misunderstanding of identity in the west so whenever we set talk about homosexuals i'm already going i'm not with you i don't believe in straight people or gay people i just believe in messy people that are messy about sex and some people are messy in this direction Others are messy in this other direction. Part of the reason this has happened is because the church stopped condemning sexual sin um, in people cheating on their wives or people sleeping with others without being married right. to them. You know, right. if, if we had, had uh, maintained the standard on that, I don't think we would be where we are. But we started um, kind of winking at people sowing their wild oats and you know, when the when the consequences of, of sex outside of marriage disappeared with the pill, that kind of made it so that the church was just like, you know, why do, do we really have to talk about this anymore? Yeah, God said it, but do we have to preach it? And as soon as we were willing to compromise on that, then that set this up. And I, you know, I, I think that there are many interests that would love to see the church decline and have been happy to use this as a wedge issue to divide us against one another. I think there have been decades of campaigns in getting us to buy the notion that you have the straight box and you have the gay box and now you have the the bi box and you have the trans box and these are the ways that we all have to make room for one another and i think that whole conversation from the beginning is designed to divide us and have us misunderstand human nature not just about our own sexuality but self uh how do i figure out who i am in light of who god is and who he calls me to be so for someone to say that homosexuals are uniquely unclean just betrays to me that they've swallowed the poison pill of Western identity, which does not hold up to scrutiny. It also says to me, I mean, there is such a thing as, I mean, I don't think homophobia is, a, it's not a phobia. They're not afraid of them, but they are uniquely disgusted by them. And I think that that is revealing of a bigotry that's not particularly helpful. I think we have to, if we're genuinely Christians, I think we have to be uniformly against all sexual sin. And when we're not willing to be against all sexual sin and acknowledge that homosexual acts are among several, uh, a majority of sexual acts that are upsetting to the Lord, that, that make him angry, unless we're willing to do that, we're not right with God because we are compromising the integrity of his word. Yeah, I think I think that. You're right on. You're right on on target there. You know, um, I I still think there's a certain amount of fear there. People, I think there is a little fear there. I think they're uncomfortable, as you said. I think there's some ignorance just about the the, the situation itself. But you said something in one of your podcasts about history, and this is just I'm just going to bring this up and see if there's any correlation between. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. 
But you know, one of the one of the big fears that uh, I guess I remember, or not, I promise you, I, I'm not that old. But the Methodist Episcopal Church back in the 1800s, one of the first fears they had was slavery. You know, and they they had people having home meetings. I mean, they were you know they were against about abolition of slavery. They used the Bible to. Um, to say that you know that, that slavery is fine, that there's nothing wrong with that, and they were fearful they were going to lose their crops. They were fearful that the economy was going down the tubes, and it divided a country where over four years, three million people fought, about six hundred and twenty thousand people died over the fact mm-hmm. that we were basically wrong about that. And I, 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 it, I find it interesting today that churches even today are debating the women in the church issue. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I say that is because you, you made uh, mention to Wesleyanism and John Wesley, and, you know, and, and I don't know that people know that John Wesley appointed an ordained minister, a female, in, in, in uh, 1761, Sarah Crosby. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a new thing. And even though Paul has a lot to say about women in the church, mm-hmm. um, and so when we look at history and we look at how people have used the Bible, uh, against certain causes, sometimes it makes me wonder, did we learn anything from that as we go through this process? And that's why I'm kind of focusing on the homosexuality thing, because people take that verse um, in Corinthians that says homosexuals, and they pull that out, but there's a lot of other things listed in there. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we take things and we do, we just forget things. I know over the years I have bought an airplane and probably didn't give enough to the church. I probably bought a home and didn't give enough to a, to the church. So I kind of had put gods before other gods before God. So I'm guilty of a lot of those things. Mm. So why is it do you think we pick that one thing out and and kind of use it as a club at this point? Well, I I have to go back and say that that um, we've fundamentally misunderstood sexual behavior when we equate it with identity. And so to equate that with women in the church or with uh, slavery in the West, which largely overlapped with race, just fundamentally uh, yeah. confuses uh, foundational issues. Um, why it is that some people focus on some sins more than others, I think is largely because the culture is pushing in a certain direction, and the role of the church is foundationally to correct the culture, to be salt in the midst of a rotting world or to be light in the midst of a dark world. The The church didn't talk a lot about homosexuality before there was a conservative movement to normalize it. So once there was a conservative, vocal, organized movement to change uh, social stance, opinion, law, and church law around um, homosexual acts, gay acts, sexual acts, um, that's when the pushback was needed. And so um, a- anytime you're going to find uh, a concerted effort to normalize, valorize, justify sin, the authentic church is going to uh, speak against that. That's the nature of the church. It's not the church if it's not speaking against that. So when you think about the, when you when – I. So sometimes the question I guess I have is sometimes, Jeffrey, do we find that we worship the Bible more than we do our risen Lord? I think the terminology that's been given to that is bibliolatry. 
And I think it's a false dichotomy. I, I, I don't think these things are separate. I think if one sees the Bible as separate from the Lord we worship, then one is uh, intentionally, fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of Holy Scripture in order to problematize it and dismiss it. Well, you know, I've always thought of the Bible as the divine Word of God. And then sometimes I'll say it's the divinely inspired Word of God because it was written a long time ago by people who I think were uh, inspired by God to write it. Where I have a little issue sometimes, though, is that it's been translated into 700 and something languages and all these different, uh, uh, started out Hebrew and then Aramaic and all that. So are we sure we didn't lose some of that down the road uh, as we get to this point? But one of the points I want to make about that is, I don't know if you're familiar with Ed Oxford, and, uh, and I will, for transparency, he is a gay clergy that went to the Talbert School of Theology, I think, um, uh, and uh, he is kind of an expert in biblical history and translations. He spent some time in um, at Harvard researching words and phrases and things like that, and you and I both know that words are powerful. Mm. You know, certain words are four letters, five letters. I mean, they're powerful words. And so he found out, or at least through his research, he discovered that the word homosexual was not really even in the language until about 1862. When you say the language, um, what, what do you mean? It, that it was basically developed, the word was invented, if you will, by the German in 1862, somewhere in that neighborhood and that it didn't show up in biblical translations until 1946 and afterwards. Now, when I say that is probably nobody in this country are using Bibles uh, that have been printed before 1946. And the reason I say that is that, you know, when you look at the Scripture that I'm referring to, it says, do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornic fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. You know, you know that verse. Well, in order to test that, I got home and I was telling my wife about that. And she said, well, you know, I've got an old family Bible here. And so I opened this Bible up. And this Bible was basically printed in 1853. And the 1853 version uh, does not use the word homosexual at all. It used the word effeminate. And, you know, if you look at the history back, back when the Pharaohs and Pharisees and the rich people had these harems of young boys and they would actually perform castration on them to keep them effeminate or keep them feminine instead of masculizing. And so I'm, I agree with you, back in, in Jesus' time, there were probably homosexual relationships just like we have now. But a lot of that was abuse and depravity and things like that. And so when you look at this particular Bible, I couldn't find the word homosexual in it at all. And I found another Bible actually here. This is my Bible, my mother-in-law's Bible that was actually printed. It's about fall apart too by the way um it was printed in 1936 and when you look at the same scripture in here it has the same word effeminate so 
according to his research, the word homosexual per se, as we in the West perceive it, didn't even show up in the Bible till 1946 and after. So my question is, have we as Christians allowed the insertion of a word that wouldn't have been inspired by God, I don't think, because it was human beings that put it in there. Have we allowed that to set our mind to focus on the sexual preference of homosexuality? And, and does, that, does that matter to you? Does that, does that information make any difference that, that referring back to the older versions, they use terms that went along with the depravity of that time? See, Dr. Valentine, I, I, I'm just not sure you've constructed the edifice of this, this question um, well. Okay. Um, whether or not the word homosexual in German or English was invented 100 years ago doesn't really change the conversation at all around specific sex acts that are described in the scriptures several times. Um, I, I don't think that that even in a tangential sense, really figures in to the conversation okay. about the right. That's why I asked the question. I yeah. wanted to get your input. So the the Greek word that is typically translated as homosexual is arsenikoitis, which uh, there there really is no other alternative translation available. The The thing that would be wrong with homosexual is because the, the word homosexual deals with uh, an identity, Whereas arsenicoites deals with an act, namely men who sleep with men. Coites would be sleeping with, having sex with, lying down with. Um, so this is something prohibited in Old Testament law, that's per particular act. And then in New Testament as well, Romans 1 really is the best place to line out the theology and what's wrong there. Romans so, 1? Yes, Romans 1. Um, Paul explains that that these bodies that we have are gendered and reflections of God in that the way that we exercise union, particularly a male and a female, is a, a way of seeking unity that reflects God's original design in creating Adam and Eve. And so sexual acts that do not take place rooted in that are rooted in uh, selfish desire, the belly, and not holy and not pleasing to God. And so, again, it's a whole family of things that you can do acting out of the wrong place sexually. And even within a male-female coupling, there's still thousands of ways to go wrong there. To say that Old Testament or New Testament correctives are based only on situations in which powerful males took advantage of less powerful males makes a three-dimensional picture very two-dimensional. It's inferring that Paul and other biblical authors were unfamiliar with practices around the world, even though we know Paul was very well-versed in other cultures and norms and practices. Um, it's to put a level of ignorance on biblical authors that, that so problematizes the biblical text that we're not at all constrained to it. So when we're saying, I believe this is the Word of God, but... I believe it was written by men with their own biases and bigotries and small-mindedness, then you've already done – you've undone the first part. You don't really believe that it's God's word. You believe that it's the byproduct of men and can easily be dismissed whenever it doesn't conform to our current understandings of science or sexuality or ethics. 
Um, there's just no point in, in saying that except just to I, – I believe that words matter. And when you say, I believe this is God's word or even that it contains God's word – if you're at at any point getting to a place where I get to sift through this and decide what is and is not God's word, what is and is, then just go ahead and throw the whole book out because it's only ever going to be a reflection of what I selfishly want it to be. Got you. Got you. Great, great answer. Well, listen, I know we're kind of short on time, and I want to uh, respect your time, and I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, this is kind of new to me, and I'm kind of – all over the place. I had a lot of things I wanted to kind of, you know, talk about, but you've helped me put a lot of things in perspective. I knew you would, um, because I'm like I said, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a clergy. I, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who's trying to learn and trying to figure this out mm -hmm. and trying to figure out where do we go from here? Yeah. And so you've done that. And I, I appreciate that very much. Sure. What, what I want to ask you now before we go is where do we go from here? So my, my question is, in 10 years, is the Global Methodist Church going to be in the same situation that the United Methodist Church is in? Is the hierarchy going to be, you know, unrestrictable? Un un uh, I mean, where, where, where we go from here? Well, that's the, that's the million-dollar question, and anyone who pretends to know the answer to that is, is a fool. There are so many variables. Right now, it's a very nascent organization, and a lot of things haven't even gotten figured out so far as checks and balances and who watches who and how the government works. So I've chosen to be optimistic about all that, um, but the GMC has made it much easier for churches to exit and clergy to exit if they, if they get concerned, and so it's just not much of a concern for me. Um, what needs to happen more broadly, I think, you know, we're, we're living in a time of deep division where um, – there's a lot of animosity caused by people who are using the same words but meaning very different things. And I think what needs to happen is that people need to rise to the surface who can explain where the tensions are and why and help new lexicons emerge where we're not frustratingly using the same words, but we're able to reckon with, okay, where, where do we actually agree and where do we not? I think there needs to be a time of division. I, I thought it was really helpful whenever the BLM protests were going on in the Northwest and you had um, this BLM zone that happened in the middle of Seattle. I forget what it was called, but the, yeah. the government just went away and they yeah, let them run down. themselves. And I just think there are so many people that have argued and fought against tradition and against the status quo, and I just want to let them go be by themselves and see what happens we let's see what happens whenever not the whole society i don't want to let them take the whole society away from tradition yeah. but let the traditionalists maintain our traditions and then the leftists go do their own thing and let's just look back 20 years and see how things are going and um because right now we can each side can blame the other for the failures that's going on because we're so close so let's just not be close anymore let's just bless each other and get away from each other and then let's just see what happens i, I think that's what needs to happen i don't know if it's going to but that's that's so what i think I got, would be helpful i got two i got two more little questions i want you to sure. try to answer for them and we'll be done okay so what would you recommend for people who are still with umc with the united methodist church like right now i've not made a decision 
Um, yeah. I'm still, uh, you know, a member of Central United Methodist Church here in, in Meridian. Mm-hmm. I haven't made a decision. I know there's been a group to break off and start a global Methodist church. So what do you what do you tell people that ask you? They say, Jeffrey, what should I do? Well, if you so any person listening to this, if you are a pro- uh, progressive liberal, you want to be on the right side of history, and you believe that that is always bent towards liberation of the individual from all constraints and by any means necessary, you should stay with the United Methodist Church. That's the path that it's on. Uh, stay on that ride. If that's not a ride you're interested in, even if you think that homosexuality is okay, but you still think that dialogue is important, that sticking with decisions is important, that the meaning of words is important, then you should probably get out if you can because you're dealing with a leadership that doesn't believe those things and will gladly um, use your money against you as soon as they want. So I I think they've been unscrupulous, and if at all possible, you should – Get out from under that leadership. I'm not saying you should go to the Global Methodist Church. If if your leanings are left, you probably won't be super comfortable there. But you should definitely get out of uh, from under the thumb of uh, unscrupulous United Methodist leadership. Okay, great, great. Well, this has been great, Jeffrey. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining me today. Sure. Um, and I know I probably didn't do the greatest job in in asking and organizing. No, this, you did great. But- but I thought it was information that helpful for me, helpful for our listeners as we deal with these issues. And yeah. I hope we can get together again and discuss some different things because I, I, I love your insight and, and you've, you've got a you've got a gift there. Thank you. And um, I really I really appreciate the time that you spent today and just to let people know that you have your own podcast called Plain Spoken. And uh, Reverend Jeffrey Rickman uh, from Nowata, Oklahoma. And uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Heart to Heart. This is the last episode for right now, but be looking for our next episode. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.